John 12, verses 1 through 19. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it was written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. God is so good. Um, in February, I was studying this passage. And Jeff, Pastor Jeff, frequently allows me once or twice a year to share about the work I do overseas to keep the local church up to... Um, snuff with what I'm doing. And we set this date in February without knowing Pastor Jeff was going to be sick and unable to be here. So praise God, because had he called me yesterday or earlier this week, I'm sure I wouldn't have been ready to do this. So I'm so thankful for God's goodness. Let's pray. Father, may your words speak today. May we learn what you would have us learn from you 
Holy Spirit, your word is truth. Guide us into that truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Memories are amazing. I wonder what memories the disciples had after Palm Sunday. The colors of the palm fronds and the garments that were laid before Jesus and the donkey. The sounds of the crowd yelling, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And the physical press of the crowd pushing and shoving one another for a chance to get closer to Jesus on that day that we call Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry. Maybe the disciples even remember the taste of the dust that was kicked up that day when Jesus was riding on that donkey. Memories are often tied to our senses. And you may have noticed I left out one. I left out the sense of smell. And researchers now say our sense of smell is the most acute for stirring a memory. My mother, and I still think so to this day, made the best yeast rolls of anyone. And when I smell bread baking, I can see my mother, though she died several years ago, standing there, kneading the bread, rolling them out, and then the wonderful aroma of them baking in the oven. It triggers that memory for me. Palm Sunday would have had many odors. Imagine the smell of a sweating crowd mixed with the odor of the excrement from the animals, the blood from the slain animals, and the smoke from the burnt sacrifices, all mixed with the incense from the temple. But I wonder if anyone got close to Jesus on that donkey, could they still smell the ointment, the precious nard that Mary had used to anoint his feet? So today, rather than a message directed specifically at Palm Sunday, I want to take us to that night before. This probably would have been a Saturday night. The Sabbath would have ended. This would have been the evening meal to break the Sabbath. And Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were hosting Jesus in their home as they had done before. And this is when Mary chose to give this extravagant gift to Jesus. I was not an English major, but I love studying the Bible from the perspective 
of the five W's and an H, which a lot of us learned in grammar school or middle school, who, what, when, where, why, and how. My teacher used to call those our friends. So who's listed in this story that Hannah just read? And I'm mainly going to focus on verses 1 through 8. Jesus, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, Judas, and as the video showed, most likely the other disciples were there as well, and the crowds outside, which was not uncommon. If someone who was well-known was being entertained in a Jewish home, and I experienced this in some locations overseas, people are going to be looking in the windows at you while you are eating or while you're doing whatever you are doing. The Bible says in this passage, John says that it's six days before Passover, so likely the Saturday night before the Sunday that we call the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday. And the where was Bethany. Now that was uh, from what I've read. I've never been to Israel. All the countries I've been to and I've never been to Israel. But from what I've read was about a, a two-mile walk. Um, and that would have been far enough out of the city to have a wonderful place to say, but close enough to get in to Jerusalem. And the what? Well, obviously, this is an event that happens around a meal. The one thing I don't particularly care about this particular portrayal, that the clip that you saw, is they probably weren't sitting up at a table. They were probably reclining um, the way people do in the Middle East, even sometimes to this day. But she still would have had access. Mary would have had access to the feet of Jesus and Martha was serving. We've seen that before in Luke chapter 10. Martha was fulfilling her role of serving. But the focal point appears to be Mary's actions contrasted with Judas. A worshiper, a lover of Jesus, and a betrayer of Jesus. And I want to read verse 3 again. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume, of pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And in those next verses, we see how Judas totally missed the point. He says it could have been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. But John, who is there, one of the disciples, the one who wrote this particular gospel, brother of James, part of the inner circle, he says the reason Judas said that is because he was a thief. He had been pilfering. He had been taking money off the top of the money for their food and travel. So if he had the perfume and he could sell it and have 300 denarii, he could make some money off of that. 10% would be 30. Think about that number. Um, 
know what comes next. And, and I, the one thing I do like about this video is that point where Jesus and Judas' eyes meet and Judas looks down. He can't bear that gaze, knowing what he's about to do. Now, I was fascinated to think that a pound of perfume could cost a year's wage, which is what people said the 300 denarii is what a person might make in a year. And I compared it to this tiny little bottle, 0.5 ounce, of a perfume I bought in Paris on one of my trips that was $20, which was a lot of, lot of money for me for this little tiny bottle, but it was my treat to myself that year. And I thought, okay, if I multiply that and I get to 16 ounces, I'm at $640. Now, I know a lot of countries that would be a lot of money for a month or for six months, but probably not for a whole year. So I went to another one of our friends these days, Google. And I Googled most expensive perfume in the world. And I figured I might find something for 5000 6000 Well, there was a perfume in February. Remember, I'm working on this in February. There was a perfume called Soleil Lalique Crystal Edition on sale at Harrods in London with the acknowledgement only one left for $25,652. Now that's a year's wage for a lot of people around the world and some here. I checked that same site yesterday, it's gone. There is not even one left now. So that was just an aside, but sometimes when I start into scripture, I have to kind of see, well, how would that work today? Sure enough, there was a perfume. Mary probably had this extravagant gift, maybe as something from her parents, maybe as something she was saving for her dowry. And yet she was willing to be extravagant in her gift for Jesus, to lavish it on him, and then to do something that would have embarrassed most women to take her hair and wrap and wash and dry Jesus' feet with her hair. And this is all happening the night before. The people are going to really praise and, oh, Jesus, come, save us. But a lot of those people had the wrong idea, too, as we know, because Jesus at that point was not coming as a political savior for this world. He was coming to die for us. Now, I'll come back to this in a minute or two, but I do want to tell you a few stories about women around the world that I see being extravagant in their love for Jesus. 
I work with a parachurch ministry called Entrust. And our website is Entrust with the four dot org because our mission is multiplying leaders for multiplying churches. So the four is four generations. We feel if if we can train someone who trains someone who trains someone, then that's going to probably keep going. And so we always look for that fourth generation who's carrying on the work. When I was in college on campus, I worked with an organization at that time called Campus Crusade for Christ, now called Crew. And I taught overseas in Kenya with them for two years. And I still remember one of my prayer letters that I sent back on what we called an aerogram at that point um, with, I have trained these women and they've trained these women and now they're teaching these women. I remember putting the names and the little chart there. So this verse in 2 Timothy, where our mission statement comes from, 2 Timothy 2.2, and the things you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful people who will be able to teach others also. So that's, that's something that has been on my heart since I was in my 20s. But for the last six to eight years, I have been working with a new, newer organization. This organization came about, as many things do, as our own denomination did. Christian Missionary Alliance did not start as a denomination. It started as an alliance of various churches and organizations to send workers overseas. Well, this organization started in Vienna before the wall fell, before 1989, because there were many different churches and parachurch organizations going behind the Iron Curtain taking training for pastors. And they decided, why are we all reinventing the wheel? Why don't we get together? So they were still paid through their original organization at that point. But um, actually someone very involved with crew, Bud Hinkson, got Jody Dillo from the U.S. to come over and head up what then was called Biblical Education by Extension. Well, it was for the men mostly at that point because they were the pastors. They needed the training. But the women started to be jealous of it. And they were very involved in the ministry of the churches behind the Iron Curtain. So they said, could we have some women come and train us? And one of my dear friends was one of those women who went. And she said, at that time, they would often keep a birthday cake handy. So if there was the knock on the door by the equivalent of the KGB in the various countries, they would start singing happy birthday and bring out the birthday cake (laughs) so that it didn't look like anything was going on around the scripture. Well, the wall fell in 1989, but that didn't mean the work was over because a lot of 
cults and other organizations were going in and reaching out to the very baby Christians at that point. So the organization kind of formalized and decided now we can send people in country, they can live, and the women's ministry continued alongside of the men's ministry. And I work today with many generations down the road of the women's ministry, and mainly in Europe and a lot in Eastern, what was formerly Eastern Europe. Um, we, my part of the ministry is called Entrust Equipping Women, because that's what we do. We train women. One of these women in Europe is a mom with four kids. She had her, sec her fourth baby during COVID. And she was so blessed by our training that she said she wanted to make sure it got to all of Latvia, which is where she lives. And she is now working with us full time also caring beautifully for her children and having a husband who is very supportive. And then in Hungary, we have a woman single who is half Hungarian, half Polish, and worked for several multinational corporations, speaks Hungarian, English, Polish, and some Spanish. And she took one of the trainings that I was privileged to facilitate. And God started working in her life. And I told you my main responsibility is Europe. Well, that's going to change in January because I will have trained Aggie to take over from me. And she, a European living in Europe, will then be in charge of the women's ministry part of Entrust in Europe. So a single woman, a mother of four, all of these women love Jesus extravagantly. They have to. I mean, you give up a job with Citibank to raise your own support, work with and trust, and you take time while your baby, many times when I talk to Lazma in Latvia, the baby is on her hip or on her, in the little pouch on the front, because you, you're trying to do two things at once when you're raising your children. They love Jesus extravagantly. Maybe this kind of love is new to you, whether you're here or you're online. That's the way Jesus loves us. That's what comes on Friday when he is crucified, on Saturday when he's in the grave, on Sunday when he is raised, and we'll meet here together next week to celebrate that.
Resurrection Sunday. But in order to experience fully that love that he has for you, you need to make a confession that you need it, that you are a sinner. Now, that doesn't mean you're a murderer. But whatever is not of faith is sin, the Bible says. It's going our own way. Maybe it's selfishness. I was saved when I was about 11 years old. And the sin I remember specifically, think about little girls, 11 years old, was gossip, was talking about my friends. And I had tried to stop gossiping, and it just didn't work. I got pulled in every time until Jesus got my attention through a pastor. And the message he preached spoke to my heart, and I said, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Forgive my sins. Come into my life and give me the power to change. Another part of that lavishness of Jesus' love is further on in John when he prays for us and says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He will be in you. It'll even be better than me being beside you because he will be in you. And after what God did for me, it was a natural response to want to serve him. So I would like for us to listen to a song now called Broken and Spilled Out. And as you listen, ask yourself where you are with experiencing the extravagant love of Jesus and also with loving him and others extravagantly.
share the benediction from Ephesians 3 verse 20 now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above and beyond all we ask or think according to his power which works within us to him be the glory amen